Let's take our Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Last week we saw that uh, there were really two main divisions. The first three chapters are doctrinal, and the last two chapters, last set of three chapters, four, five, and six, are practical. The first three chapters deal with the believer's wealth in Christ, and the last three chapters deal with the believer's walk in Christ. The first three chapters deal with the believer's union in, with Christ, and the last three chapters deal with the believer's communion with Christ. But in that first chapter, there is a text that I would take today, beginning in verse 15. We dealt with the others last week. And uh, this Ephesians study will continue in depth on Wednesday evenings as Dr. Hip leads us in our winter Bible study. So you'll get a kind of a summary here and an in-depth teaching there. I hope that you'll make a special effort to come out on Wednesday evenings. But I've selected out of these verses, verses 15 to 23, a very important theme and one that I think is literally forgotten in the body of Christ, and that is this. If you look at the first two verses, therefore, Paul says, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give to you, and then he lists a number of things for which he is praying for the Ephesian believers. In verses 3 through 14, he has dealt with praise. It's the language of worship and praise, as we saw last week. But in this text, he is praying for Ephesian Christians. I want to title this message, How to Pray for the Strong. I believe that there has uh, seeped into the body of Christ a uh, rather deadly habit and that is that we tend to pray only for the squeaking wheel. We tend to pray only for those with obvious need. We tend to remember only those that have shared a specific outspoken need. But after giving us a model of praise, now Paul gives us a model of petition in this chapter. And it is a model of petition for Christian friends or brothers and sisters in the body who have strong faith and great love for other Christians. And uh, how do I know that? Because he says in verse 15, After I heard of your faith and I heard of your love for all the saints, I began to realize there were some things I need to pray for you Ephesian Christians. Do not take anybody in this body for granted. Do not take the godliest woman around you for granted. She still needs your prayer. And we tend to pray only for the downtrodden and the weak and the needy and the poor. But we must also learn that we carry a burden for the strong in the body and we must never take anybody's maturity or their service for granted. We have an obligation to pray for each other even when there is no squeaking wheel. We make a great mistake when we take anybody in our network for granted. Whether it's a wife, don't take her for granted, not spiritually or not 
familiarly. Whether it's a husband, a fellow Christian, or our children, or our parents, nobody in this building has arrived and is beyond the need of spiritual support. Too often we pray only for those with obvious need. It is a tragic mistake. Now I want to bear my soul for a moment. For the first 10 years of my ministry, I was a need chaser. I know Jesus said he came for the downtrodden. I know he came for the poor. I know he came for the weak. But for the first 10 years of my ministry, the people who got the most time from me were those that had the squeakiest problem. In fact, while we were still down at 8th and Buxton, I carried a bottle of peraldehyde in my dash at all times. I was dealing with so many alcoholics. And one day it struck me that I might be investing my time in a place or people that were not always producing the most fruit. Now, please hear me carefully. I don't think we should ever get to the place where we forget to meet the needs of the needy and we forget to pray for the hurting. But at the same time, we must balance that with prayer for the strong, those who seem obviously strong, those who appear to have it all together. Don't take anybody for granted. And I learned that there were some people whose cups you could never fill. I could run around for them day and night and I would never see any fruit of my ministry. And I was ignoring the strong ones who also needed encouragement, who also needed prayer, who also needed ministry from me. And I want to plead with you as a body for balance today. Henry Nowen just died recently. He was a Catholic mystic, but a man who loved Jesus. In one of his books, he said this, As I entered my 50s and was able to realize the unlikelihood of doubling my years, there comes a time when you realize you're not going to double your years. I don't know whether you've reached it yet. I think I've reached it. I'm quite sure I've reached it. He said, when I began to realize the unlikelihood of doubling my years, I came face to face with a simple question, did becoming older bring me automatically closer to Jesus? After 25 years of ministry, I found myself praying poorly, living somewhat isolated from other people, and very much preoccupied with burning issues. Something inside me was telling me, however, that my success was putting my own soul in danger. I woke up one day with the realization that I was living in a very dark place and that the term burnout was a convenient psychological translation for spiritual death. I was fascinated by that. There is not one of us that has arrived, and there is not one of us that has been serving the Lord so long, studying the scriptures so deep, that we're beyond the need of prayer support from all of the rest of us. And we must never forget, like Paul, to pray for the strong. I'm fascinated by this. And it struck me in the text. When I hear him saying this, I'm struck by your faith and I'm struck by your love. 
Now, I want to pray something for you. He wasn't just praying for the weak. He was praying for those who had impressed others with their faith and their love. I want you to grab that. I, don't, I want you to, to remember that idea. Years ago, years and years and years ago, years ago, when I was about 18 or 19, and I was headed back to school in Florida in an old Ford that, that uh, I borrowed from my brother. And I was driving about midnight through South Georgia and I stopped at a cheap gas station to get some gas because I had $3 in my pocket. And I thought that it probably would be better as gas in the pocket before I might get to some place that didn't have a station. This is before interstates. This is before you had all the uh, opportunities for travel that we have today. And I remember the, the guy came out of the gas station to fill up my tank with $2 of gas. I think gas was about 18 or 19 cents a gallon. And uh, when he was filling up the tank, he looked down at one of my rear tires and there was a bulge on it. And that tire had worn a complete hole and the tube was sticking out. The tube was sticking out of the tire. And I was riding along totally oblivious to what was wrong. And if I had not stopped for gas in a few miles, I would have been stuck in the middle of nowhere with no spare, no tire, three bucks, which couldn't have done me much good anyway. And I'll never forget, he said, have you seen this on your tire? And I felt down there and there was the tube sticking out through a hole. So he took the tire off. We found an old tire on a pile in the back of the, of the uh, gas station. I cut me out a boot. Now, how many of you know what a boot is? Does anybody here remember what a boot is? Now, a boot would have been a piece of a tire that I would have cut out and then stuck over that hole and then pumped up the tube so that it would not let the tube protrude out the hole of the tire. And then you would hope for the best as you drove. And it went thump, 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 thump. And then if it went real fast, it went thump, 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 thump. And you would not go to sleep if you were driving with a boot on your tire. Amen? I can promise you that. Do you remember that, bud? Do you ever drive with a boot in the tire? <laughs> and I went limping my way on to back to college in Florida with a boot in my tire. But I was totally, totally oblivious to the problem until it, I had stopped and it was pointed out to me. And my friend, the body of Christ has many in it who, like Henry Nouwen, have gotten along well, they seem to be cruising along, they seem to have everything in order, and there is no obvious need, there is no spoken need, they are not grumbling, they are not complaining, they're standing in their place of service, but they are often standing in need of great prayer support. I plead with you, I plead with you, invest some time of prayer for those who appear to be strong. Now, what was it Paul prayed for then? And you'll see that he prayed for three basic things beginning after his introduction in 15 and 16 in verse 17. I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And here's what he prays. The first thing he prays for is that they might possess a spirit of wisdom and revelation. This is for the strong. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 17, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, or so that you might have an epinosis, an experiential knowledge of the Lord God in a personal relationship. So he is praying that God would give us, that we would possess a spirit of wisdom and revelation. He is praying that those who are strong in faith and those who are strong in love would have a spirit of wisdom. That is exactly what was required of the deacons, wasn't it? A spirit of wisdom, a spirit of, of, uh, of sound spiritual wisdom. <clears throat> now let's talk about wisdom for a moment. Hold your hand here and go back to Proverbs chapter 1. One of the things that wisdom always represents in any Jewish mind, which would have certainly meant Paul's mind, is that wisdom was, was uh, having its own characteristics, spiritual wisdom. Primarily, wisdom was the capacity to learn and hear and apply truth. Notice what the book of Proverbs is about, chapter 1, verse 2. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive or grasp or take hold of or discern the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel to understand a proverb and an enigma, but the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You know what he's praying for for them? He is praying that they would never stop learning. The chief characteristic of the wise men of the Bible is always the capacity to take reproach, the capacity to take rebuke, the capacity to, to learn from everything. The men of God do as a spirit of wisdom is never above learning. He is always open to truth. When you come to James, go back over here to the New Testament. When you come to James in the New Testament, you see the same thing. His comment about spiritual wisdom from above in chapter 3, James 3.17, is this. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without, without hypocrisy. The wisdom from above is teachable. There it is again. I want to pray for the strong around me that none of us will ever get to the place where we cannot keep on learning what God has for us. And it's surprising the sources from which that instruction will come. I was reading the other day of a, of a man who was telling his experiences in the Gulf War. He said he'd just been promoted to colonel. And he was standing in his tent office. And he saw a private coming up with a toolbox. And he thought, I'll show that private how important I am. And he picked up his telephone and he said, yes, General Schwarzkopf, yes, I'll take care of that right away. Yes, General, I'll be happy to take care of that. Yes, General Schwarzkopf, making sure he said it loud enough that the private could hear. Uh, 
And, uh, and then he said, well, goodbye, General. I'll talk to you later. And he hung it up. And the private walked in and he said uh, uh, to the, uh, the, the colonel said to the private, now, why have you come? And he said, sir, I've come to hook up your telephone. <laughs> it's amazing where and from whom we will learn. But he's praying for the strong that they will have a spirit of wisdom and secondly, a spirit of apocalypsine. It is a spirit of revelation or a spirit of vision. And apocalypsis is a mystery that, like a musterion, only it is a mystery unfolded, what he's talking about. I would pray that strong believers would never get to the place where they don't keep seeing surprises in the Scripture, in the Word of God. Don't ever get to the place where you no longer see a brand new truth. You don't have to have something new every day. But you do want something fresh every day. And the spirit of revelation is a spirit of discernment. The capacity or ability to discern God's truth out of what appears to be hidden. Now I have a little set of six laws that I apply to myself when I'm trying to understand what the scripture is saying and I want to give them to you. Here they are. I ask myself about every one of these uh, uh, every one of these questions about a passage of scripture. In fact, I, I applied that to this scripture and that's how it came to me. It struck me that it was so unusual. I've heard of your faith and your love. Now I want to pray for you. You would have thought, boy, your faith and love are in trouble. I'm going to pray for you. No, he said, you're strong in faith and strong enough. Now here's what I pray for the strong. And it struck me as I looked at my prayer list in my prayer book, the, all, everybody on my petition list was somebody in a special need. And I wasn't praying enough for people who were, seemed at least to be going along well, sailing along on the sea of life for God. Here are the six things. First, there's the law of observation. What does this scripture say? That's the law of observation. Secondly, there is the law of interpretation. What does this scripture mean? Thirdly, there's the law of application. What does this scripture mean to me? Now, those are the first three. Observation, interpretation, application. But there's a fourth question if you want a spirit of revelation. And that is, the fourth is the law of foundation. What truth of God lies behind this scripture? What truth about God is the foundation for this scripture? My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, what's the law of foundation ask? What truth of God lies behind that promise? You know what truth it is? God is a grace, a God of grace, full of everything that you need. He has everything that you need. You always need to ask that question. The law of observation, what does the scripture say? The law of interpretation, what does the scripture mean? The law of application, what does the scripture mean to me? The law of foundation, what truth of God lies behind this passage? Fifth is the law of conviction. What does this scripture tell me not to do? What does this scripture prohibit me from doing? What does this scripture tell me I am doing that I should not be doing? 
ask the law of conviction. Ask that question of the passage. And sixth is the law of association. And that question, that law demands that I ask the question, how does this passage affect my personal relationship with God? Because remember, Paul said, I am praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of, of reveal wisdom or wisdom and revelation. It's a hendiatus. They can be separate or they can be modifying each other. So that you may know him. God doesn't make you wise so you can sport your wisdom. God makes you wise so that you can know God better. He makes you wise. He gives you the capacity to discern truth so that you can get to know God better. Everything about the word of God is designed to draw us closer to him. I want to know him better. I want to get closer to him. I, I want to be with him. I want to know who he is and what he's about so that we will grow in the knowledge of God. Everything about the spiritual environment that the Lord sets for us is designed, is designed literally for his presence, for us to be in his presence. That's why divine worship is so important. Uh, suppose I've got a, a fish tank. We had one when the kids were small. Did uh, anybody here ever have an aquarium? How many of you ever had an aquarium? And, uh, you know, you can take that fish out of that aquarium, take him out of his element. For instance, suppose you say, um, I'm going to go out and uh, I'm going to just enjoy the sun. I'm going to sit in the sun for a while. Boy, I'm going to have a quiet moment in the sun. And fish, I love you so much, I'm going to take you out with me so you can enjoy the sun too. So you take it out, you sit it down by your, your chair outside, and you're, you say, now fish, now Goldie, I want you to really enjoy this. This is great, isn't it? Boy, don't you love this? And the fish is flopping, flopping, flopping until it quits flopping. Why? See, the fish is out of its environment. It isn't made to live out there. It's made to live in water. God wants to give the strongest of us. God wants to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might grow. You never stop growing in your relationship with God so that we will grow in our knowledge of him because that is what we were made for. We were made for God. God made us for himself. And anybody who tries to live outside of God will grow estranged from God. That's not your element. You were not created for that. Man is essentially a spiritual being. And apart from the God who is the key to life in the spirit, you cannot really know life. Some of you are trying to live outside your element. Now notice Paul goes on to say in verse 18, a second thing he's praying for. He prays that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. Would be enlightened. Uh, one translation has it a little bit better. Actually, it's uh, your mind or your heart might be filled or flooded or overflowing with light with understanding, filled with light. So he prayed first that they would be given a, they would possess a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And secondly, he prayed for the strong that they might have hearts flooded with light. 
the eyes of your understanding being opened, absolutely open. Now, to understand this, we probably need to go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Turn over here to Ephesians chapter 4 and uh, look with me at verse, oh, let's start with verse uh, 18. When he's speaking of the Gentiles, he said that they had their understanding darkened and they were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardening of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over to ungodliness or licentiousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, I don't know any better way to explain to you what it means to have a heart filled or flooded with light than to see the exact opposite. And this is the exact opposite. Gentiles without Christ, any man or woman without Christ has the following things, Paul says. Their understanding is darkened. They just, uh, you can share the truth of God, you can share some great thing God has done, but they won't understand because their understanding is darkened. I don't see any, any problem with this. There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. Their understanding is darkened. Number two, they're alienated from the life of God. Three, they're ignorant. Four, they have hardened their heart. Five, they're past feeling. Six, they have given themselves over, given themselves over to licentiousness to go on in their sin. Seven, to work uncleanness with greed. Now, if you do the flip on that, you'll find out what he's praying for the strong, that their understanding will be filled with light, that they'll grasp the great truth of God, the great truth of God, that they're alienated from the life, that instead of being alienated from the life of God, they are drawing close to God. Instead of being ignorant, they're learning about God. Instead of having a hard heart, their heart is soft and tender. Man, I don't care how long you've been a Christian. Don't ever get to the place where you can't shed tears anymore. Don't ever get to the place where your heart can't be broken anymore. Don't ever get to the place where your heart can't be crying out for the souls of men. One of the defining moments of my life that I will never, ever, ever, ever forget was in 19... Uh, 76 or 7 and I was in the Philippines and I went to Manila and there in a stretch of, uh, of uh, about three quarters of a mile there are six universities and there were over three quarters of a million students within a six block uh, six block area and I'll never forget standing at the Baptist Student Union for, for Manila International and, and, and looking at just the waves of people. It, it was like a half million people changing classes and moving around. The street was filled. No traffic could go through. And I remember feeling my heart breaking, feeling just absolutely broken for those, those Philippine students who needed to hear about Jesus. And what an opportunity that was. I remember when Steve Shoemaker went with me one time to India in 1975. And I remember getting up in the middle of the night 
and I'll never ever forget, Steve was standing at the window of the home where we were, we were uh, staying. And there in India, people are walking nine and 12 abreast at all hours of the day. And he was looking out at about three in the morning and he saw just a crowd of people. We don't know where they're going. We don't know where they're coming from. But there they were walking. And he was standing there, tears streaming down his face because of the lostness, the, num the sheer numbers of lost people had overwhelmed him. So when he's praying for, a, for a, a heart flooded with light, he's, he's praying for those who are not past feeling but full of empathy and sympathy, who have given themselves over to godliness, not licentious, licentiousness, who have given themselves over to work holy works with unselfishness, the exact opposite of what Paul is describing in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. Now, why did he pray that, verse 18, chapter 1? He prayed that the eyes of their understanding would be flooded with light so that they would know two things. They would know the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance. <laughs> the hope of the calling. See, it's possible when you've been saved a long time and you've learned a lot about the Bible, it is possible to forget what your calling really is. Your calling is not to be busy. Your calling is not just Bible knowledge. You know, sometimes I worry about us. We pile up Bible knowledge after Bible knowledge after Bible knowledge. The purpose of Bible knowledge is to conform to the moral image of Christ. The purpose of Bible knowledge is to have something to give away to the world, and you can't give away what you don't possess. And so he says, he prays that these Ephesian Christians who have strong faith and a love for the saints would never, ever forget that they have a calling and that calling is to be a Christian and to serve Christ. And because of that calling, there is hope. I want to tell you there are times unless you feel called to the ministry, you wouldn't stay in it. There are times unless you feel called to teach Sunday school, you wouldn't stay in it. Unless you feel called to the mission field, you won't stay in it. Unless you feel called to youth ministry when you're teaching junior highs, you won't stay in it long. Amen? <laughs> Unless you feel called, every Christian had better settle the hope of his calling and you never outlive your calling and you never outgrow your calling and your calling always gives you hope. My hope is that Jesus Christ who called me is the Christ who will finish my work, his work in me and the work that I do through him. And secondly, Paul said, I'm praying that you will never forget the riches of the glory of your inheritance, God's inheritance in you. We are God's inheritance. Never, ever forget what you have. Man, am I ever rich. You have no idea what I've got. Man, have I ever, I might have five bucks in my pocket. I just felt it. Uh, that is five. But I'm rich. I'm far richer than that $5 bill because you and I, the children of God, are the inheritance of God. And because we're the inheritance of God, just think we have everything that he has, Paul has already said in this chapter. Dave Ravecki, if you read his book, the baseball player said that for much of his life, his calling was to play Major League Baseball. And after he discovered he had bone cancer in the arm. And he thought it was cured, and he went back to the major leagues. He was a lefty, wasn't he? After he went back to the major leagues, and he was throwing and snapped his arm again, and the cancer was back the second time, and he had to amputate his left arm. 
He said the biggest task that God gave him and what God worked him through in that was he had to come to the place where his calling was not to be a major league ball player. His calling was to know God, to know his wife and rear his children and have an influence on the world. And he said, when I came to understand my calling was not to be a major league ball player, I could go on with life even without my left arm. And he hit it exactly on the head. I don't want us to have to go through a tragedy to understand what is the hope of our calling or the riches of the glory of our inheritance. So Paul is praying to keep our hearts flooded, flooded, flooded with light, with the truth of God. <sighs> Sometimes my wife says to me, honey, no way people can hold all the truth they get at Calvary in any one Sunday. She said, you're going to wear their minds out. Some of us need retreads. <laughs> she says, you go to church Sunday morning, you get a Bible exposition. You go to Sunday school, you get more Bible. You come to CEI, you get more Bible. You come Sunday night, some of us come back Sunday night. Come Sunday night, you get more Bible. She said, by the end of the day, I can't remember which lesson is which. Who said what, when, where, why? I'll tell you what, brother. My Bible says that Paul prayed that they might be flooded with the light of God. The world has a, a crack at our kids for 25 to 30 hours a week. And if you had television, you can add another 17 hours a week onto that. And I'm not going to make an apology for four hours of Bible training and moral training and ethical training. I want the people of God to be flooded with the light of God and the truth of God, even the strongest among us. You cannot live without God's light and God's truth. We were on the on the cruise last week and uh, David Bodenhammer and I were riding over to uh, see an aquarium. There's a nice aquarium under a hotel that has a casino on the front. No, we didn't win anything or lose anything. I made sure he didn't pull any, any arms and he made sure I didn't pull any arms. And... Uh, on the way back, uh, it's just my nature to talk to the cab driver. I figure I'm paying him. He's going to have to listen to me for 10 minutes. Amen? <laughs> I got a captive audience. So I was carrying on a conversation, working down to the gospel. We got down to the gospel. And I asked him what he wanted out of life. And he said, I want my, my, my boy, my one-year-old boy, I want him to have an ethical and moral training. And we were at the, at the ship by that time, and I said to him, well, how's he going to get it unless you've got him in church? Where's he going to get it unless you've got him exposed to the truth of God? Paul says for strong Christians with strong faith and strong love, I pray that your hearts and minds will be flooded with light, the truth of God. And here's the third thing Paul prayed for in the last one. Verse 19. He prays that they might grasp the greatness of the incredible power of God. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? Uh, hold on just a minute. It's so easy for us who have electricity to pick up the hairdryer and say, oh, it's going to work. I, I know it's going to work. It's so easy to go down to a microwave and push a button, make some popcorn at 10.45 in the evening when you ought to be in bed. 
It's so easy for us to get a nice ice-cold drink filled with ice from the ice maker. We take power for granted. And if you've never been or never lived or never stayed any place where there was no power, i never forget when I was in the Philippines one time on Cotabato, down at Malang, where the Southern Baptist College is, and they only had power for two hours a day, only power. And in, in the morning at 9 o'clock, it was already 110 degrees. And I was 90 miles from the nearest paved road. And the dust, it hadn't rained in so long. The dust would settle up and you'd perspire. And I, I remember one morning, I do dumb things like this. I remember one morning testing out how dusty and how hot it was by writing my name in the dust that was already on my arm. And you had a narrow window of time to get a bath and a shower. And then we had the, the uh, citywide campaign in the Chinese Baptist Church in Malang. And a Chinese merchant was providing power for us. And whenever he decided, when the customers stopped coming to his, uh, to his store, he would shut down his, his uh, generator. And when he shut down his generator, our light was gone too. Many times I was standing up there preaching right in the middle of the sermon and the lights just went out. We had to finish the meeting in the dark. I mean, you could hardly see who was coming forward. That was faith. And I remember thinking, I will never, ever, ever, ever take power for granted again. And Paul says, I'm praying that you Ephesians will not take for granted the power of God. What is this power? He said, here it is in verse 19. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ. I'll tell you what power is available to us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. And the same power that put him above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named in this age and the age to come. That's the power that's available to us. Paul ties the power of the Holy Spirit today with a power available to the Ephesians. And he says, here's that power. It is the power of God that raised Jesus, the power of God that ascended Jesus and the power of God that placed Jesus as Lord over everything. That's an incredible, awesome power. Let's take those one by one. Put your hand here. We're coming back. But Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. Concerning his son, the gospel concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. I love this verse. This is one of the most important verses. I don't know what you believe about the resurrection, but I'm going to tell you this. I just don't believe anybody can be saved who doesn't believe Jesus is alive. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Man, that is fundamental. Don't argue about the resurrection. It is done. And that incredible power that declared Jesus to be the Son of God is available to us. So Paul says he, declared, he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection is the sine qua known of the Christian faith. There can be no faith unless you believe Jesus was raised and is alive. And don't put down the ascension. Go to Acts chapter 1. Don't put down the ascension. The ascension. Jesus was, was raised and seated at God's right hand. Look at Acts chapter 1. 
Verse 9, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. And the two men, two angels, stood by in white apparel, apparel, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner. Christ was raised by the incredible power of God. He was seated at the right hand of God by the incredible power of God. He ascended. And finally, he was placed above everything by the power of God. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Tied to the resurrection is this wonderful truth, Paul says. 4, verse 23, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, each one will come in his own order, the resurrection. The resurrection of the saints, the resurrection of the lost, Christ first, the first fruits, then afterwards those who are Christ, the resurrection of the saved at his coming, and then at the end, the resurrection of the lost. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under Christ's feet. But when he says all things are put under Christ, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted, meaning God, everything but God is under Christ. And when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to the Father who put all things under him, the Son, so that God may be all in all. So Paul prays that they will be, they will grasp the greatness of the incredible power of God who raised Christ, seated Christ, and placed Christ over everything. Verse 22, Ephesians 1. Paul picks up the same theme as 1 Corinthians. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. And the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that word fullness, pleru, means three things. It means expired, fulfilled. It means you filled up something and brought it to an end. Christ has fulfilled the law. He brought it to an end. It means saturated, <laughs> It means saturated. If I take a, a sponge filled with air, plunge it in this bucket of water up here, in this cup of water up here, it fills with water so that the sponge is now filled with water, saturated. And thirdly, the word filled means completed, <laughs> filled up. I've got a 10-ounce glass here. I want a glass of milk. You fill it. You fill it to 10 ounces, it is now completed and filled to the brim. That's the word. Christ, who has been raised by the incredible power of God, seated at the right hand of God, placed over everything, fills everything. That doesn't mean Jesus is that tree. That's a new age philosophy that stems from pantheism. But it does mean that he is the end of everything. It means that he is in control of everything and that he will complete everything. Such is the incredible power of God. That's why nobody can change a human heart like Jesus can. Paul's praying for the strong. The change will keep on going in the life of those with a strong faith and a strong love. Never take anybody for granted. Pray for them. 
Pray that they'll have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Pray that their hearts will be flooded with light. Pray that they will grasp the incredible greatness of his incredible power. Pray that. There was a street person by the name of George White in Chicago who slept in a back storage room of the 18th District Police Office. Two officers by the name of Kikowski and Mitch, the Chicago Tribune reported, watch this guy. He ate breakfast every morning. He had one meal a day down at the G&W Grill. Billy the Greek fed him for nothing every morning. He had floppy soles on his shoes that were held on by rubber bands. He had an old army coat that he wore to keep him warm. And the two officers one day took him home for Christmas and uh, gave him some presents. And he looked at them, the street man did, George, and he said, are these mine? Yes, they're yours. Are these mine to keep? Yes, they're yours. Are these mine to do whatever I want? Yes, they're mine to do whatever you want. And suddenly and mysteriously, he began to wrap them back up in the wrapping, put them all together. And he said to the officer, would you take me somewhere? He said, yeah, as soon as the rest of the family has opened their presents. They were done. They got in the car. He said, take me to G&W Grill. And he walked inside to the G&W Grill and said to Billy the Greek, the man who'd fed him breakfast for the previous two years, now I can give something to you. I've never had anything to give to you, but now I've got something to give to you. And took the presents the officers had given him and gave them to Billy the Greek, who'd fed him breakfast for nothing. And you know, once the incredible greatness of the incredible power of God has touched your life and transformed you and changed your greed into unselfishness, you've got something to give away. It's his power. It's his love. I've had my heart broken in this church. There have been a couple of times where people that I thought were strong, serving the Lord, busy, and I took them for granted. And I could name some names, but I won't. But my heart was so hurt by them, I will never, ever, ever forget. When men that you love and you've trusted and have been busy and you thought were all right for God and going great guns for God and suddenly the bottom fell out. As one man told me, I know this is wrong, I know it's sin, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm going to finally do something for myself. I've learned through the years, tempered by experience, never to take anybody for granted. Pray that the strong might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that their hearts would be flooded with light, and that they would grasp the greatness of the incredible power of God, the same power that raised Jesus is available to us in our lives. Let's bow in prayer. I want you to sit where you are for a minute. I want you to ask God to lay somebody on your heart other than a staff member. You can pray for us another time. I want you to ask God to lay somebody on your heart that you trust, that you respect, you believe is a strong Christian. Now would you stand with me? Let's stand together. Father.
Speak to each of us and all of us. Draw that man or woman whose understanding is darkened, whose life is estranged from you, who's a rebel from you, draw them to yourself. Speak to the Christian who's beginning to backslide and draw them back to your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.